0: Intellectual property is in the news. Martha Stewart is trying to trademark the name of a posh New York suburb. The Red Cross is being sued for trademark infringement for its use of the Red Cross. And your own business could be susceptible to exploitation or worse. In this episode of the Legal Business Podcast, we talk to IP attorney Jan Lennon from Rutherford Mulhall, PA. that the information and opinions in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The laws of every jurisdiction are different and constantly changing, and each legal problem is different. Joining us today to discuss intellectual property, or IP, is Jan Lennon of Rutherford Mulhall, PA, here in Boca Raton. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for being with us, Jan. Tell us, just before we jump into the, the whole thing, intellectual property and, and small business or medium-sized business, tell us a little bit about yourself and the firm.
1: I'm an intellectual property attorney. I represent small to mid-sized businesses as well as some uh, larger corporations. I'm licensed uh, both here in Florida as well as Massachusetts, and uh, I work for Rutherford Mall Hall, PA, which is a 25-lawyer firm based here in Boca Raton with offices as well in North Palm and West Palm Beach.
0: Fabulous. And how long have you been doing uh, intellectual property?
1: I've been uh, focusing on intellectual property law for about the past uh, seven or eight years.
0: I know it's not just for the inventor or author anymore, is it?
1: That That's correct. One of the exciting things about this area of law is it is one of the fastest growing disciplines and one of the reasons for that is just the incredible access that people have to content now because of the web and the ability for individuals and businesses to create both creative products in the areas of uh, literature, music, uh, as well as inventions and uh, unique processes. And one of the things that I do and my firm does is to help people understand uh, both the value of their current intellectual property as well as taking the accurate and protective steps needed to uh, marshal their intellectual property and leverage it for financial gain in the marketplace. So basically
0: just protecting themselves and making sure they don't get ripped off. Because I imagine, I mean, you could really hurt yourself if you're not careful, if you have something unique and some, you know, unique business practice or or trademark,
1: uh, you know, marketing slogan or something like that. That's correct. And, and one of the things about the Internet is it's given uh, the entire population such access to ideas that um, that if you are don't have some good basic fundamental protections in place, copyrights, trademarks, patents for your inventions, you really run the risk of uh, being the victim of piracy um, and you could potentially lose your entire business venture and have it eroded right out from underneath of you. So while traditionally Fortune 500, 100 companies have, have always been very mindful of their intellectual property and have taken great steps to protect it. What we're seeing now is that the small businesses, the mid-sized businesses, as well as individuals, also need to be thinking much like a Fortune 500 and really uh, protecting and marshalling their intellectual property.
0: I remember several years ago, several people were outraged in the uh, in the internet area when Amazon actually got a patent for one-click ordering.
1: Yes, and that's it. A- that, was,
0: that was just ridiculous. I, I remember uh, everyone, people that I worked with, were just outraged that they would you know they were able to patent that as a as an invention when everybody was I mean it's a simple basically flip of the switch type of thing on a programming level
1: yes, Steve you're right that's that's one of the um, that's kind of the wild west of uh, of intellectual property and, and patentability and uh, something that uh, we're increasingly seeing um, businesses apply for these they're called business method patents and they essentially are. Uh, applications to protect a particular uh, process or procedure and they are obviously of uh, incredible value if you can get one but they're one of the uh, perhaps one of the hardest and most complicated patents to uh, file and have approved because you're right you're dealing a lot of times with um, which seem like uh, generic or amorphous concepts and to get them into the patentability sphere uh, sometimes to uh, delay people seems um, does seem a bit ridiculous but um you know, stay tuned because the business method patent is one of the uh, hottest and um, probably most exciting uh, and often misunderstood areas of uh, intellectual property law.
0: So, Jan, just to help myself and and our listeners understand, uh, what are the basic different types of, of uh, intellectual property that we're, we're talking about. I know things like, you know, copyright and trademark and, you know, what's the difference between all that stuff?
1: Yeah, Steve. I mean, a lot of people have sort of a general understanding that there's, um, you know, what intellectual property is in, in a very, very general way. But, but essentially, it breaks down in the, in the most simplest form is that uh, you have copyrights or copyright registration, which is designed to protect works of original authorship, such as books or software or music. Um, as well as uh, performances, particularly uh, you see this probably a lot in, um, you know with film productions and music productions, screenplays, screenplays, like uh, you know, all, all of the uh, you know quote unquote creative um, manifestations of uh, of products. Trademark registration or trademarks uh, commonly refers to uh, logos, names, or phrases. This would be, you know, the Nike swoosh with the Just Do It um, tagline. Those are trademarks. Then you have the area of patents, uh, which you have design patents, utility patents, and as we spoke earlier, business method patents. And uh, a design patent is uh, an application uh, to the government for a, basically a a monopoly on the look of an original product. Um, This would be something like a, um, you know, how a, a, like, how the coca-cola bottle looks Um, then you have a utility patent which is how a original product actually works this would be um, commonly referred to like uh, with inventions um, and actual machinery and things of that nature and then you have the business method patent which is a patent that protects the business process or procedure how a business works Uh, for example the the click-through technology and then you have uh, something else called trade secret protection which is a unique method of, of making a product. Um, this this area is, the trade secret uh, arena, is a, um, a fascinating and often litigated area, and it is unlike the other uh, intellectual property that I mentioned earlier. The trade secrets are not necessarily um, those things that are, are applied through the government, through the United States Patent and Trademark Office, such as trademarks and patents and copyrights. These are things that a business has within its four walls that is confidential secret information that um, helps it to run or or defines what services uh, it offers. Companies establish uniqueness with tactics such as locking up formulas and having employees sign confidentiality agreements. This would be um, a trade secret uh, example would be the the kernel seven herbs and spices or the formula for coke or it could be uh, something uh, very commonly um, you know a customer list uh, a proprietary database of of uh, customer contacts and uh, sales information and this again is one of those areas that I'm very um, proactive with my clients about because oftentimes a smaller mid-sized business may have trade secrets that they don't even realize that that they are their trade secrets, and they need to take some very basic protections to protect those, particularly when other individuals in the company have access to this information. We see very often uh, situations where businesses have um, developed an outstanding product, have a great sales force, have really defined themselves in their niche, and uh, lo and behold, they've got a, an employee who is in the organization and says, uh, wow, I bet I could do this and, and make, make more money if I were doing this on my own, and has access to certain trade secrets such as customer lists and uh, proprietary Recipes information, and Yeah, and, and can go out very easily and just duplicate the business model on their own once they have those trade secrets. However, if you take certain protections, having these employees uh, sign confidentiality agreements, non-competition agreements, uh, recognition of trade secrets, again, these are very basic measures but can protect a business Uh, immeasurably and give them something to, one, discourage these folks from even going this route and and trying to take this information and and, uh, heaven forbid they do actually take this information, you would have the ability to uh, sue them and enforce the various uh, contract provisions. Again, it's a good basic thing to have in place some basic confidentiality agreements trade circuit type agreements to really lock down um, the things that make your business vital.
0: Right. So, I mean, I I think Something like a a restaurant. Their recipes are obviously correct. That's something they would need to protect. Or what about something like uh, the sales script for a, a business?
1: Absolutely. Uh, that that's exactly uh, that's exactly the type of thing that a good um, confidentiality agreement um, will help a corporation or employer protect against um, the rogue employee or the, uh, the people entrepreneur. That, yeah, right. That really want to take advantage uh, of of some. Uh, you know information that the corporation has developed and, and use it for their own uh, out there in the marketplace. but that, that's exactly right. And, and that's again one of those areas that um, you know you don't need to be a, a huge, sophisticated high tech company to have inel- intellectual property needs that need to be addressed. And uh, again, that's one of the things that I really am emphasizing with my clients is take some good proactive measures, uh, particularly with uh, locking down your trade secrets and the things that make your business unique and run.
0: And I would imagine uh, even non-competes, if you're kind of the first in the market and and, uh, you've come up with, you know, whatever the business is, and just setting up a a non-compete for your your employees so that you don't have that, you know, assistant manager who then decides to go out and, you know, I can create a better mousetrap, and all of a sudden you have, you know, everything that you've worked for, they've basically cribbed and... That bang, that, you're you've got instant competition.
1: That's exactly right, Steve. And um, the, uh, the 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 non compete agreement is um, you know fairly standard again in, in big large corporations and and things of that nature. And but it certainly has application in, in any business where you are uh, where you have these other folks that have access to this information. And it's it's often one of the most litigated areas. Um, and one of the reasons um, for that is that there is this tension in the law. And our American way of life, which is to, you know, we, we respect entrepreneurship and we respect the, you know, the person that can go out on the frontier and, and go go make it on their own. And we want to encourage that. We want to encourage people to go into business and to take risks and to, you know, do great things. And that's one of the things that, that makes our country so great. And there's that That sort of romantic ideal um, that is sometimes at odds with the uh, provisions of a non-competition agreement where we're basically telling someone, look, there's limitations on what you can do on your entrepreneurship as it relates to the business that you're currently working for. So that's one area where in order to have a court uphold your non-compete agreement, you have to be very careful about the provisions that are put in there and the jurisdiction in which you are working. There are some states that interpret uh, non-compete agreements as as totally repugnant. They they, they barely uphold them and they're just a few basic provisions that they will uphold and there's other states where the courts are very respectful of them and allow allow businesses to draft uh, very tight and restrictive non-competition agreements and they'll uphold them and they think that that's an important um, important provision in the law. So Again, it's one of those areas. Every state is very different. This is an area that you have to. Um, there's very rarely a one-size-fits-all type of uh, blanket agreement that you can use across the board and in, in every state. And it's um, a very state-specific and uh, an area that is constantly uh, changing, either being ratcheted up or ratcheted down, uh, depending on what the judiciary wants to do.
0: I, you know, as as you were going through that, I, I just remembered in terms of non-competes, I had been doing a lot of programming. Uh, I'd been working as a programmer and uh, technical writer, and then I changed companies. And the new company, I was strictly a a technical writer and technical editor, but their non-compete agreement was very broad, and it was basically any uh, any programming that you do while employed at this company is not yours. And I had to have a little negotiation with them before I signed the non-compete, and we had a writer on my non-compete agreement because i wasn't doing any programming for them i I was just i was just a tech writer and i said look i'm not going to sign this because i've got my own little software company that i set up and i'm selling shareware and yeah it's just a stupid little hobby type of thing but you know i'm not going to basically get into some dispute with you if that happens and i know that's not the intention of the agreement so we had a little back and forth on that
1: that's true you know there are um Again, it's one of those things where sometimes you know employees uh, or employers are working with agreements that are very broad and, and generic and, and don't necessarily apply to the situation. And and the you know the problem is is that uh, as you encountered, sometimes they're really just not relevant or applicable. And the problem is is if um, if anything does happen and you do have to litigate that issue, you know you run risks of of having it enforced or having a court respect it. If it is not specifically drafted to the situation for which the employee signed, so again, it just kind of emphasizes, uh, you know, the reason to really have a very you know, precisely drafted document that covers the types of employees and types of um, actual trade secrets that um, that you want to protect. And, and you know, the trade secret arena um, is fluid. I mean, you can't have someone uh, sign an agreement that that makes everything that goes on within the company a you know quote unquote trade secret. This has to be Real proprietary information that you've sought to keep secret that does give you a competitive advantage. Um, it can't just be um, apply to every blanket uh, piece of information that is within the company.
0: Right. Well, I know uh, like uh, sales scripts and those types of things. Sometimes a company will spend big bucks and go out to a consultant to have a script written for them. Uh, that's And correct. then they'll tweak it to you know get it just right for their business. Um, another question I had: logos. And trademark. What's the difference? Because because a logo is a creative piece of work. You know, it's basically a little right, art piece. Right. Um, is that copywritten or is that trademarked or is it
1: both? You can actually uh, you you can actually have uh, reason to protect it in both arenas. Uh, you know, the trademark uh, registration basically does protect things like logos and um, and taglines and and things that you use to sell your product. But you know, a creative, artistic piece um, that's associated with the logo could also be filed for uh, copyright protection as a as an original creative work. And y- you know, you depending on the circumstances, you may want to think about both. You may want to have the actual um, the actual trade the actual uh, logo uh, that you do use as your trademark registered as a trademark but you also the creative component of it um, the actual graphic design may also qualify for copyright protection as well and one of the other issues with trademarks is that um, you, you what you want to do is have both the the logo and the words associated with it um, filed uh, separately as trademarks in other words if you have um, you know again nike just do it you want to have the graphic uh, swoosh uh, protected as a trademark as well as the words associated with it, protect it as a trademark as well. So you might have multiple filings for an individual mark.
0: I, I know working with some graphic designers, they've done logos for me, and they've offered, in some cases, to give me the paperwork to get it trademarked or or what have you. Some of them do that, some of them don't, and I, I imagine, I know it's crossed my mind from time to time, you know, if you're dealing with someone a little shady on the on the graphic end or is this really my logo? I, I know right. I paid them for it. It's, you know, services rendered type of thing. But how how would a business person protect themselves, you know, to make sure when they get a logo designed for their website or their business or whatever, what steps should they go through to,
1: to make sure that that is their logo? Well, that's, a, that's a great point. You know, the first thing is uh, do exactly what you did, actually communicate that issue with the designer up front saying you know what what is our arrangement here did you create this and I'm using this under a, a licensing agreement which is a again a limited right to use something or are you essentially giving me the copyright ownership in this graphic design so I can go and use it as a trademark um, you gotta remember a trademark is is something that you're using or intend to use to um, sell goods or services in the stream of commerce, whereas a, a copyrighted design may be um, a creative work that, that someone could, you know, essentially kind of sit on the rights. So they could create something um, and they, for instance, a, a photograph or a uh, or logo design or a piece of artwork or a picture where they own the, they've copyrighted as a, a creative piece that they own but it's not necessarily being used to sell a product or service so it's not necessarily trademarked. But but again, I would want to make sure anybody that I hired um, to to design things for me uh, that there was a very clear arrangement up front of what the understanding was because some designers will give you a license which is again a basically a, a contractual agreement a limited property right in the use of a creative product that they create where they actually want to retain ownership in the product so they can, they can use it, uh, for other folks. Um, this happens a lot in the music business where, for instance, if you've written a song and, you know, Volkswagen wants to use it in a commercial, you can grant a limited use to use that song for a commercial purpose, but Volkswagen doesn't necessarily own that song. You retain the creative copyrights in it. The same holds true for, uh, graphic design and images. Um, you know a lot of uh... a lot of design uh... designers and and web designers where they're essentially hired by you there's no expectation that they're going to retain the copyrights in it once you buy their services um, generally the copyright passes as well and gives you the right to go and copyright and own that mark but again you you, you want to be careful of that and you want to make sure because for instance if you are using um, a logo or design that was created by someone else um, and they have a copyright on it, um, and they thought that they were just giving you a limited license, you may run into a disagreement or litigation over that issue. So um, it is a good idea to be very clear up front about what the understanding is with the use of this image.
0: Yeah, I could. I mean, that could be awful if you're five years down the road, you've got a, a good little business going on, and all right. of a sudden there's another company using almost the exact same logo, <laughs> right, right. and you find out that it was done by the same the same artist or designer, and... You know that's, what's, that's right. what's your recourse, and you want to make sure that you have that locked down, because those logos do become you know like the Nike swoosh. That
1: is, you see that, and that's that's Nike. Everyone knows that that's Nike. That, that's right. I mean, the um, again, just speaking broadly about you know intellectual property. There's there's a lot of studies and uh, estimations, but some studies suggest that, that current companies' value can be up to based uh, based upon uh, the actual value of the company can. Uh, intellectual property can account for almost 75 percent of the value of the company whereas you know 50 100 years ago a company was really valued by what it owned the you know the real estate the bricks and mortar the machinery the the processes that it had in place but um that's really switched now i mean the companies are really valued by their intellectual property which can be their innovations or designs um uh the patents that they hold if they're um, you know um, a computer company, or uh, some kind of manufacturing company, or they can be uh, something like the logo and the the branding and the kind of the uh, the equity that a an idea holds in the marketplace. Um, those are the things that really give companies value now, and is again why intellectual property law has really come to the forefront as as the content and the world of ideas has e- exploded uh, over the internet. It just become it becomes an area where there, there needs to be uh, continued regu- regulation and diligence by the uh, business person.
0: And I imagine, in I mean, one of the reasons for that. I mean, you could get into a really worst case scenario uh, in the case of our you know, fictional restaurant, where the assistant manager goes off and does his own thing. Uh, if you don't have all that stuff in place, you may have lots of recourse to to sue that person, but then you're incurring a lot of expense and hassle and. You know, you could end up getting negative publicity
1: on it, that, that's and all sorts right. of things. That's right. I mean, and that's uh, again a reason why to, you know, why I encourage my clients and I try to get them to think um, very proactively about intellectual property, just as they would any other basic protections that they put in place when you start a business. You know, when you form the form the company or form the LLC, uh, you get the insurance, um, all the the basic checklists that you go through as an entrepreneur, as a business person, whether you've been whether you're very sophisticated at doing it or just starting out, I try to get companies to think about their trade secrets, their trademarks, their copyrights. Think about those things early. Get those things protected. Get those things locked down. And you can avoid a whole host of headaches and litigation farther on down the line should you get that wily employee or a competitor that's trying to take advantage or leverage off of your name. If you have the good basic things in place, uh, a lot of times you can head off these disputes uh, very early on. Um, you know I had recently a very uh, a very interesting case involving a local establishment that had a trade name. It was really just the name of their of their restaurant and bar for that matter that was similar to an international um, entertainment consortium and this kind of hometown place found itself in the middle of uh, very high profile intellectual property litigation in federal court in California. And, you know, if you would have talked to this guy, you know, the first day he was opening up his little restaurant in Boca Raton, uh, if you would have told him that he would have been involved uh, with a, you know, a European record company and restaurateur, uh, in blow to blow litigation in federal court in California, of course, you would have thought you were crazy, but, but that's exactly what happened. And, and fortunately, we were able to get the case resolved for pretty favorable terms for our guy, um, but it wasn't without a lot of, of very knockdown, drag out fighting uh, through the court system. Hindsight being 2020, had our client thought about intellectual property early on and, and perhaps filed a trademark for this particular name he may have been able to avoid this entire conflict because he would have already carved out his intellectual property rights with respect to this particular name. And um, what had happened is because he had not done that, um, this person started using a name that was somewhat similar to his um, and did, in fact, trademark it. So when they discovered our client, even though he had arguably been using this name beforehand, it was not trademarked and... um, you know, we ran into some, some issues. Uh, like I said, eventually we were able to resolve on very favorable terms through um, a lot of legal wrangling, but uh, certainly our client would have liked to have avoided that process, um, you know, the good outcome notwithstanding.
0: Right, yeah, well, I know my my father always says, you know, if you're going to be in business and you're in business long enough, you're, you're going to get sued or you're going right. to sue somebody. It's just going to happen. <laughs> right. uh, but if you can avoid those those big, ugly Ugly cases. That's that's the whole point. And I was thinking, one of the one of the great things about this, and I guess it's it's being added more and more by lawyers to their their business checklist when someone's starting a business is the intellectual property. The nice thing about that is that it kind of forces the business to th- make them think about why am I unique, and it can actually really help the business because you can you can really start to define yourself and separate yourself from the pack.
1: Th- that's uh, correct. I mean you know, part of the exercise when, when we do work with clients about protecting their intellectual property is is getting them to think about uh, leveraging their ideas and uniqueness. And you're right, it does it does make them a better business because it forces them to think about, wow, okay, what do I have that's worth protecting? And if I don't have it, maybe I could start creating it. Maybe I need a, a better logo or a better tagline or maybe, geez, maybe I can, you know, improve in these particular areas. And in what we what we try to do is is help them think in those terms and think about their enterprise as an intellectual property business, even though they may be making pizzas or making you know milkshakes. I mean, think about your business as an intellectual property business, even if you don't think you're in the intellectual property business. And um, a lot of times that does force them to think, Creatively about their designs, about their processes, and forces them to dig down deep and find some uniqueness about their business, and, and thereby builds builds value. And sometimes a you know a small business can become the next big business. Uh, we see um, a lot of uh, local restaurants and things that have a great product and a great process uh, come to us and talk about you know franchising options. They want to they want to spin this business model out, you know, all over the U.S. or even regionally. And in really a franchise is essentially a intellectual property licensing deal where you take certain logos and concepts and license them to other individuals for a fee. So it's is essentially at its heart, the value is in the intellectual property, is in the logo, is in the, is in the look, is in the, the trade secrets, the, you know, the herbs and spices, the things that make it unique. And so when a business thinks in those terms early on, again, even if they're their vision is really only local, um, is is somewhat limited in scope. Um, you know, you don't know what's around the corner, and you certainly want to be thinking about ways to make your vis- business valuable in the marketplace, both from a local standpoint and a national standpoint, should you wish to expand or, or go a different route with your business.
0: Right. So you're really, you know, setting, your, setting yourself up for success and protecting your success at the same time. Th- that's correct. That's great. Well, if, let's say, a, a business owner decides, you know, I, I really do need to, to talk to somebody, uh, what are the things that they should think about and get together before they plop down in front of an attorney?
1: That, that's a great point. Um, you know, the, the more productive your meeting meeting can be with an attorney is the better one because there's always the time efficiency factor and, and you want to be able to give the, uh, the lawyer as much valuable information from the onset so he can properly evaluate what course to take. Um, you know, at, at the initial meetings that I have with clients, you know, one of the things I, I would like them to do is really take an inventory um, and be over-inclusive uh, with what what their business runs on. You know, let's talk about the customer lists, the products, the logos, um, really, co you know, bring together all of that information to the first meeting. Again, I'd rather have them be overly inclusive because I may see something in there where you know, I may see a trade, se- you know, an arguable trade secret, where they just see it as a oh, that's that's the list of our customers that we use, or that's um, the way so we've I, always done it. Right, right. So I really encourage, um, you know, I really encourage uh, over uh, over inclusive in our first meeting, um, because then that gives me the ability to to hopefully find areas that um, that uh, that we can work on. But yes, definitely, you know, I want them to bring uh, printed. Um, you know, printed versions of their website, um, you know, so we can talk about possibly copying the content of their website, um, you know, bring any sort of designs, ideas, um, you know, anything that, that has become part of their business that they've created. Now, one, one thing that I, I want to make clear is that on the patent front, that is a whole different uh, arena, uh, a sub-niche of um, the you know the big intellectual property picture, where I do not counsel folks in the patent arena because uh, patent lawyers have to be a member of a patent bar and uh, very often have an advanced degree in um, in a particular field such as electrical engineering or they have an advanced they they usually have a science background combined with the legal background. But we have um, several uh, outstanding law firms that we have a relationship with where we we essentially partner with them on the patent front. But a patent attorney, when you meet with them, they're going to want to see an exemplar of your invention or some sort of plans, um, some sort of um, technical rendering of the invention that uh, that you have so they can test it for um, its novelty, its application, and do a patent search on it. And so if, it, if I have a client that is a, has a patent need, uh, a lot of times I'll do the initial meeting with them to sort of explain the process try to guide them in the right direction and 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 really look at their look at their creation and talk about the the reality of of the patent process and then i will um set them up with one of our patent attorneys that we work with the uh copyright trademark trade secret arena that's um that's my sphere that's my area of expertise and that's where that's where I believe I add value but again the the patent process is is very exciting very unique but it is very long and it is very technical and the folks the patent attorneys that um, the the good ones that focus on that area um, are are really invaluable because they again they're approaching this from both a scientist technical standpoint as well as a legal standpoint and that's really the type of background you need to um, to, to obtain a patent
0: and I've, I've never been involved in that too extensively personally a couple of companies i've i've worked with and worked for have have gone through that process and i know it's a long process and, yes. and a quite expensive process too i understand
1: it, it is and, and that's um it, it's very expensive from the front end too because a, a lot of times you know you need to develop a prototype or develop some kind of working example of your invention which uh, even if you make it in-house um as you can appreciate, could could get very expensive. And, and there are companies that will make prototypes for you, but they're like anything else, Steve, in the world. There's varying degrees of quality, and there's a lot of um, chicanery on that end where, unfortunately, good, smart, well-intended inventors and creative people get mixed up with companies that don't necessarily have the same values and sometimes can you can end up paying a lot of money for a prototype that one doesn't work or two is not you know really up to standards for um for the patent purposes so i just um you know that's one of the reasons that even though i'm not a a patent attorney and i don't counsel folks on on patents per se um if there is a general intellectual property need uh, i certainly will talk to people a little bit about that process and uh again Get them with the right partner that is a um, you know a good patent attorney that can um, guide them through that process and and a lot of times uh, what I find is that if the person does have an invention that does uh, obtain a patent or they go through that process then I get back involved with them again picking up with okay we got to protect the name of this thing we got to protect the tagline we got to protect the integrity of this by blocking access to it by keeping it um keeping it under lock and key from your employees by keeping it uh keeping it protected so a lot of times after the patent process is done um i get back involved with these clients and help them with the sort of um, day-to-day intellectual property issues they're going to confront
0: i I remember there was a a sting nut uh not too terribly long ago, uh, about the the I think she was a secretary or something at Coke who tried to sell the, the secret sell the secret form. formula <laughs> yeah. to
1: Pepsi or something. She actually approached them. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. You know, it it does it it happens all the time. And um, um, you know, access is you know one of those things too that we talk about with companies is um, who has access to this and do they really need access to it? I mean, is this the kind of is this customer list? Um, or is this, uh, you know, is this quote-unquote trade secret? Is this something really everybody needs to know? Or should we just isolate its access within the four or five key players, just leave it under uh, in, in sort of a um, a vault somewhere? I mean, who, who really needs to see this? And sometimes, you know, you'd be surprised to find um, how many companies have um, their proprietary information really disseminated throughout the organization, again, with um, certain employees that, that one would have no reason to use it or see it, and, and it just creates an opportunity for potential uh, abuses. So um, that is one area that um, you know you have to be very uh, very cautious of. Well, who who actually has access to this information? And uh, again, with the um, incredible data storage capabilities of the internet, um, you know access is just uh, a click away and is uh, is so readily abused by folks that um, again you have to be very very careful with it
0: yeah absolutely I mean now especially I mean there's you know thumb drives and these these little right. uh, you know memory devices that you can you know plug into a USB port and if you have a disgruntled employee and your entire customer list is on there, Right. It, can be, it, it can be it can be very very dangerous, especially if you're keeping credit card information and that type of thing, and you haven't protected yourself that way. That's
1: right. That's that's very true. And um, you know, unfortunately, we have seen those abuses. And you know, the the confidentiality agreements and the contracts are, um, you, you know, they are not they're not an absolute bar from. I mean, you can never uh, regulate someone. Um, you know so that that you can guarantee that this is never going to happen but at least it gives you uh, one a deterrent on the upfront side where someone says geez i, I signed this paperwork um, i uh... It, it sometimes makes them more respectful or a little more cautious before they do consider something because now they know their consequences and then like i said if uh... heaven forbid if they do actually take your information at least it gives you uh... A platform to uh... file a lawsuit um, and you're not uh, sort of grasping at um, uh, arcane legal theories to try to enforce your your ideas. You actually have a, a contract and some black and white uh, print that you can rely upon to help enforce your uh, enforce your agreements.
0: Well, great. Uh, we're coming up on the end of it here. Uh, just to to recap, uh, business owners really need to to take care of their intellectual property, and it's not something you know. I, you know, in my dad's day, it was you rent a place you open up your business you, you know take out a couple ads in the newspaper and you know get your vendors lined up and off you go uh today it's much more much more in the realm of intellectual property we've got we've you know almost every business has a website um logos and and that it's not just a, a sign with the name of your <laughs> your right. enterprise on the right. on the front door anymore it's uh you know sophisticated logos and and sometimes different versions of the same logo and all sorts of different things and all these different business practices that we've we've talked about recipes and and uh,
1: business practices and sales scripts and that's right i mean one of the things that i do offer or i talk to clients about is you know let's let's have a meeting where we really just inventory your business before before we advise you um, what we do is we say look let's have a an inventory and, and almost a compliance type of meeting. Let's, let's go over everything that you have and make sure uh, all, of the, all of the areas are protected. Has your website content been copyrighted? Have your logos been trademarked? Are your key employees uh, locked down to some sort of confidentiality and non-compete agreements? Have you taken certain measures to identify your trademarks and service marks? Um, and really, uh, really have them um, uh, take an inventory of what goes on in their company and help them to understand it, and then talk about where they're vulnerable and take the proper steps to protect that information. That's
0: obviously sound advice, and I know <laughs> it's, even it's. It, I've I've also had friends who were involved in you know family businesses, and when those go sour. It, they Nothing really more. go sour yeah. <laughs> so you know everyone needs to sign those those confidentiality and
1: non-competes i would imagine that's right and you can always you can always blame it on your lawyer even if you're in a, <laughs> even if you're in a closely held small business even with family members or things you can always you can always say well our, our lawyers making us sign these things and uh <laughs> take these uh sometimes uh maybe awkward uh steps when you are working closely with people but um it is just—it's just good business, like uh, getting insurance or uh, having any other protections in place. It's good business to take stock of your intellectual property, take stock of what you have, uh, and take the right steps to protect it. Well, great. Well, Jan, thanks for stopping by. And also,
0: I mean, we touched on uh, franchising and uh, uh, distributorships go along with that. And perhaps in the future, you'd come back and
1: talk to us about that. Definitely. My, uh, that's my next, my next topic in the series is going to be uh, franchising (laughs) because it's a, um, it's another exciting area. And I'm working with some um, very interesting clients in that arena. Um, But again, it's one of those, it's not for the, um, it's not for the faint hearted. There's um, Uh, a lot of government compliance issues, state, federal. Um, It's where um, a lot of different uh, types of law intersect in the franchising community, and you've got um, a lot of complicated federal laws that you have to be mindful of, as well as state business opportunity laws, as well as intellectual property laws. So it can be an incredible business model, and it it can be very lucrative when done correctly, uh, whether you're buying the franchise or selling them. But it is uh, definitely an arena that is not uh, to be taken lightly, and there's a lot of um, a lot of issues that come up, and um, I'll definitely be happy to come back and address those as well.
0: Great, I'll have my people call your people, and All right. we'll set something up. <laughs> thanks, well, Steve. thanks again, Jan.
1: Thank you.